Now, before we get started, I wanted to ask a question. I guess I'll put this down here. Who in here is um, kind of a rule follower, like, by nature? Anybody rule followers by nature? You don't have to be ashamed of it, okay? Just out of curiosity for me, what percentage of those are also firstborns? Because that tends to be, you see, the firstborns are really into following the rules. Mom gave a rule. That's the law, right? Well, for those of you that are rule followers, do you ever have it where you go to somebody else's house and they don't have the same rules? And you're like, what's this? They don't take their shoes off at the front door? Where, where are we? Is this like some savage land or something? We, we get accustomed to these rules that we have and then we think, therefore, everybody else should be following them when they're really just our own traditions and rules. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, some other rule followers that are uh, a little even more hardcore than that. As, as Scott said, we'll be in Mark chapter 7. If you haven't gotten there yet, let's uh, turn there. But these rule followers take their rules and their traditions very, very seriously. And we'll get to see how Jesus responded to that and see how it benefits us. So I believe you guys still do the standing for a reading of God's word, right? So let's go ahead and uh, do that, and I'll read for us. Uh, I'm reading from the LSB, so it might be a little bit different from yours, but I just got this, and I love it, so I'm going to read from it. Plus, it's all in one column instead of two, and I can easily see where the verses are. It's really helpful for me. But let's read from God's Word. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with defiled hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves. And there are many other such things that they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, You're good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever you might benefit from me is Corban. That is to say, given to God. You no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. This is our reading from God's word today. Go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> and let's pray and then get into this text. Well, gracious Father, uh, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for revealing in your word uh, so much, and particularly here as we're studying the Gospel of Mark, so much about the life of Christ and how he interacted with uh, many different things uh, in his culture that while their clothes were different, their um, uh, entertainment was different, everything about their life seems so different from ours. The, the hearts of men have not changed, and we get to see how Jesus responded to these men's hearts, and uh, I pray that we learn from it this morning uh, how we should respond similarly. Thank you for this time. I pray it be uh, edifying for us and glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's start working our way through this text. So first, we're going to quickly understand the setting, okay? We start with a very simple sentence here that says, The Pharisees and some scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. If we were to just kind of read that in a vacuum, you might think this sounds like just like all the other people that are following Jesus. They just want to hear some really good teaching. But it's important to remember where we are in the context of Jesus's ministry. This isn't such a, an innocent thing. At this point, we actually know that these religious leaders really want Christ dead. He's been a thorn in their side for a while, and they want to remove that thorn, right? Uh, another gospel actually tells us that Jesus was specifically in Galilee during this time because those in Judea wanted to kill him. So, these guys, they came 80-ish miles with that goal in mind, which 80 miles was no afternoon stroll, right? So we need to remember that their goal with this whole interaction is we ultimately want to be done with this guy and have him out of here, okay? 
And then verses 2 and 3 tell us what the whole trigger point is of this confrontation, which comes to then the accusation uh, against Jesus. Okay? And this whole thing, this whole hubbub, was that they saw the disciples eating without first washing their hands. Now, some of you are thinking, probably more on this side, uh, I wouldn't tell my mom, but pretty much every day at school I ate without washing my hands, right? You don't have to confess to that. I know it, okay? So what's the big deal, right? Well, again, context is king. So I'm going to give you a quick history lesson, lesson about the tradition that we're talking about here, okay? It's the tradition of the elders that is being violated, right? This is all about tradition, If you haven't picked that up, we have in verse three, it's the tradition of the elders. Verse five, tradition of the elders. Verse eight, tradition or commandments of men. Verse 13, tradition. That's what this whole conflict is about. It's not actually about scripture. It's not about the the Torah, right? The written law of Moses. They're not nearly as concerned about that. What they're concerned about is their traditions. So if these rules, these traditions didn't come from the Torah, well, where did they come from? Well, going to go back a ways. This all started with Moses gave the law at Sinai, and eventually that law was written down. We have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that being the primary giving of the law, and then we have the whole rest of the Old Testament. Well, they had this law of God, good, but there were Jewish leaders throughout all that time that wanted to really protect God's law. So when that uh, oral law was passed down, after some time, the leaders of The people of God kind of said, you know, let's build a fence around the law, right? We need to make sure that the law, capital L, is kept. And in order to make sure that it's kept, let's put a fence around it, right? So then if people only come up to the fence and no further, then they'll never even get close to violating the real law of God, right? So that's, at least in its original form, what the idea of these traditions were all about. These were extra rules, extra rituals to make sure that no one would go so far as to really break God's law. Well, over these hundreds of years that this was happening, a whole bunch of rules would be created, mostly uh, orally passed down until uh, sometime after Christ, around 200 AD, they finally put all these together in written form, and they had this final body of work of these traditions and rules, which was called uh, the Mishnah. That's just free trivia for you. Um, And it's this kind of tradition, the traditions that would make up the Mishnah, that the disciples are being accused of breaking, not actually God's law. Uh, Just some additional trivia for you. Uh, Along with these now written records of the traditions or these rules, there were also commentaries by uh, the greatest of the rabbis that were put together on the rules called the Gemara. And then those two things put together would make up what's called the Talmud. Have you heard of that? Have you heard of the Talmud? It's kind of this... This is the book for Jews of the day, and even some Orthodox Jews now, it's still kind of their rule of life. This is what it means to be a good Jew. Um, Again, this all came together as the written thing after the time of Christ, but it's those kinds of rules that would make up the the Mishnah, and that's what's in question here. Okay, So that's what Jesus is being accused of, of his disciples breaking these traditions that have been put together over hundreds of years. So all of this stuff, all of these rules were seemingly predicated on what sounds like a noble idea of wanting to help people to obey God, okay? doesn't sound that bad, but really their original intention, what their thoughts and reasons for doing it, doesn't really matter because what we see happened here in history and frankly what still happens today is the same kind of downfall. And this idea present in the Mishnah, the Talmud, all of these extra scriptural traditions, it really demonstrates the universal problem that Even now, Christian denominations will have, or individual churches, or even individual Christians can fall into this trap of legalism, right? Any any man-made rule, no matter what it is, any man-made rule that seeks to add to God's revealed word are going to be bad news, right? And that's because, as we have seen in the past and we still still see today, man-made rules eventually supersede God's rules. It just happens. And once a man-made rule supersedes God's rules, those then becoming, become what we then use to punish people that don't follow our rules, right? Even if they are following the actual word of God. Any of these man-made rules we come up with, they end up turning themselves into the means of evaluating spiritual success or failure as opposed to the actual word of God. And 
This, this is like a universal truth. You never see this not happen, right? A little double negative for you on a Sunday morning. But we see this frequently in Scripture, and where such rules exist today, um, you'll see the same thing, right? Legalism is this process of adding rules to what God has already revealed, often in an ill-advised attempt to help people live up to God's directives. But it never works. Um, it always leads to distraction from what God has actually said, and then from you as the rule follower or breaker, it can turn, it can lead to boasting on one end of the spectrum, look how well I'm following these rules, or it can lead to despair and a lack of assurance if you're the one who's not able to meet the rules and ultimately these feelings of condemnation. Or from a leadership perspective, it can lead to the, the rule makers and rule enforcers gaining power over the rule followers. Now, a quick thing I will note, um, adding little extra rules, air quotes, for yourself to help you in areas of obedience where you know you tend to struggle with certain things, that can be a good and wise thing to do. There's really nothing inherently wrong with that. But when you take your rules and then try to apply them to the lives of everybody else, and then that becomes the standard of Christian orthodoxy, how other people are, are living up to your rules, that's a problem. For yourselves, And then as church leaders, also, when a church leader lifts up traditions to the level of a commandment from the Lord, I would categorize that somewhere between foolish and downright wicked, right? That's bad news. But we continue. Back to the story. Per the requirements of these traditions, these religious leaders have pointed out a violation. They've thrown, thrown a flag. The disciples were eating without washing their hands. And again, this isn't about mom making sure you're not icky, no icky hands at the dinner table, right? It wasn't about being dirty. Um, it wasn't about health at all. This was a ceremonial cleansing, okay? It wasn't to wash off germs. It was to wash off any contact you have had with something that is ceremonially unclean, okay? So maybe somewhere out and about they bumped into a Gentile, or they bumped into a Samaritan, maybe somebody that had eaten pork for breakfast, there could have been any number of situations that would make them ceremonially unclean. And this hand-washing rule was designed to ceremonially get rid of any impurity from the things that you've come in contact with. Now, per God's actual revealed law to covenant Israel, this wasn't something that the common person was required to do. The priests, the priests did have certain ceremonial rituals that they had to do to be prepared for their priestly duties, but the common people were never required to do something like this. Um, and those cleansing rites of the priests had a specific purpose as well, and ultimately they were pointing us to the perfect sacrifice of Christ as our perfect blood offering. But again, the common people weren't required to do this. But the Mishnah, those traditions, added the requirement for the common person to also ceremonially wash their hands and to do it every time before they ate, right? And this being a ceremonial washing was fairly elaborate. I won't give you all the details of it, but it was kind of a big to-do. Everybody looking at you would know exactly what you're doing. You're putting on a show to, to wash up. Now, to be fair, it's not difficult to imagine the discussions that took place to lead to such a tradition being put in place. Maybe, since you guys are younger, maybe it started with the leaders having a concern for the youth, right? Our young people aren't really understanding the importance of this ceremonial cleanliness ritual, right? They're forgetting what a big deal this stuff is. So let's, let's help them. Let's help them, right? How can we do that? Well, what if we have them wash their hands too, not just the priests? Let's have them wash their hands. That way they'll participate themselves and get the idea of what... It means to be ceremonially clean from the sin, uncleanliness around them. Good idea, right? Well, when should we have them do it? Well, how about when they eat, right? Everyone's got to eat. Let's do it then. So if we can couple this activity with eating, that way we'll really bang it into their heads how important this purity lesson is, right? But you know what? If we just make this a suggestion, a good idea, people aren't going to do it. So let's make it required. Right? Let's make it, if you really want to be worshiping God and obeying him, you must do this before you eat. And look how we've helped our young people become better God followers, right? So you kind of see how it starts. It doesn't sound that bad. It sounds almost like it is helpful, but what it ends up doing is showing this 
mistrust of God's wisdom, right? If God wanted this stuff in Scripture for us to do, he'd have, he'd have put it there, right? I think we all fall into this thinking that we're, we can help God out, right? We've got good ideas for what God maybe should have put in his word that would have been helpful, right? We, uh, we're pretty smart. We think uh, adding this extra sentence to be a little more specific would have helped out a little bit more. But God doesn't need our help. He gave us his word, and it's exactly what he wants us to have. And we would do very well to limit ourselves to what he has said. And then outside of that, as Christians who have been set free from the condemnation of the law through the redemption we have through Jesus Christ, we then have the liberty to set certain parameters around our own lives to help us better obey God and grow to be more like Christ. That's all well and good. But we should never think that anybody else then is required to go by our own personal micro-legalism, if you want to call it that. Quick example is what I'm talking about. Um, I generally don't drink alcohol because, number one, I don't really like the taste of it. Number two, it's very expensive. Um, but number three, there is some alcoholism in my family, and I want to protect myself from following in those footsteps. But there, there's no biblical command to 100% abstain from alcohol, right? Wine is part of the Lord's Supper. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding as his first uh, miracle recorded. Scripture makes a point to say it was the good stuff, right? Um, Paul even recommended a little alcohol for Timothy when he had a bellyache, right? So drinking alcohol is not off limits. It is for you, but it's not off limits uh, in general. Um, but drunkenness is clearly called out as sinful, right? Drunkenness is contra scripture. But in moderation, there's no commandment broken by somebody having a drink at a baseball game or having a glass of wine at dinner. But let's just say that I personally choose to abstain completely from alcohol because my conscience won't allow me to do it. I feel dirty when I drink it, and that's because I fear that it is a sin because it's going to lead me to alcoholism. So I say no alcohol, period, for myself. No problem. No harm done. No foul there. That's a good enough reason for me to not drink alcohol. But if as an outworking of that, I impose that as a rule to the order of like an 11th commandment on anybody else in the body of Christ to say nobody's permitted to drink alcohol. And if they do, it is certainly a sin. Well, I've just started to build up my own little Mishnah for everybody else. So if I start questioning somebody's faith or you know, bringing people up on church discipline because I saw them order a glass of champagne after the, the championship game or something, um, I've started to turn my personal legalisms, my preferences into unbreakable principles. I've turned them into capital L law. In my head, of course, because I'm trying to preserve God's law and help them be obedient and not fall into sin. Well, this is what eventually happened with what started with these religious leaders hundreds of years before Christ, creating and compiling all of these traditions, and it really stems from a mistrust of God and his revealed word. Revealed word. <clears throat> and ultimately, after these have been compiled and building up over hundreds and hundreds of years, these leaders were really doing a great disservice to God and his people by passing down these rules that would eventually become uh, weapons against people that truly were trying to follow God, people who truly were trusting in his promises by faith. And what they did was lead people to, in uh, the words of John MacArthur, worship the right God, but in the wrong way. And that's something we want to avoid. Mark goes on to give a handful more details about a, a bunch of little things that they have these rules for. And that kind of gives us just a little sneak peek into what always tends to happen when we compromise with God's word uh, and its purity and we try to add little things to it. One addition leads to another addition leads to another addition. Once we've compromised once, we start to add in more and more little things, again, thinking we can help God out. And it eventually gets out of control. And the, the one thing that you can trust about a legalist is that they will always view it as a hill to die on if you don't comply with their particularly defined rules, right? They want conformity to what their conscience can bear more than anything else. And we see that in the Pharisees' uh, next question. Uh, verse 5, let me just read it here. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? 
Now, oh, that's not going to get old. Um, now, this kind of question could have been asked by a sincere person with a sincere longing to know the answer, right? Traditions aren't necessarily a bad thing, so it isn't out of bounds to automatically ask somebody why they're ignoring or not obeying a certain tradition. But again, that's not the case here, right? Um, now, I would say that in general, any traditions can and should be questioned, but some traditions are good, right? In 1 Corinthians 11.2, Paul specifically says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you, right? So here we have Paul saying, high five, guys. You're keeping up with the traditions that I gave to you. Good job. So tradition isn't de facto a bad thing. So a question about, you know, why somebody isn't following a particular tradition isn't automatically bad either, right? Um, I'm fond of referring to this principle that goes by, it's not whether, but which. If you're around me much, you're going to hear me say that a lot. It's not whether, but which. Uh, you'll hear that and by what standard. That's my second favorite, but we'll save that for uh, another day. But when it comes to traditions, it's not whether or not you have traditions. It's which traditions do you have, either as a family, as a church, as any kind of institution, as an individual, whatever. You do have a set of traditions. And if you don't believe me, we can talk for two minutes and I'll let you know what your traditions are. Okay? So in the case of religion, the question of tradition is, again, not whether you have them, but for the ones you do have, where did they come from, right? Are your religious traditions extracted from Scripture, or are they imposed on and added to Scripture? That's the key question. And in this case, we know that these traditions are the latter. They've been added to God's revealed word. So anyway, this question was not a sincere one. Again, because remember our context— uh, these people wanted Christ dead. So we can assume that they have evil motives in this whole situation, right? And in essence, it wasn't really a question. It was an accusation with a question mark thrown at the end, right? Moms and dads are good at these, yeah. Um, it isn't like Christ actually could have given them an answer that would have satisfied them. and Like he would have said, oh, good question. And he explains it and they say, okay, and walked away. That wasn't going to happen, right? The issue wasn't really with what the disciples were even doing. Because the leaders could have just gone, gone and asked the disciples too. They were there to confront Jesus. The issue was about what Jesus, as their teacher, was teaching them. The problem that they were addressing is that Jesus is undermining them, right? We, we can read this, that the Pharisees were really in this faux question saying, Jesus, you're blatantly teaching your disciples to sin with regards to these ceremonial washings that we put in place. You're challenging and undermining this whole structure of Jewish traditions that we have, which includes our status as the top dogs of that structure, and we're not going to stand for it. That was the question they were asking. Um, and Jesus wasn't going to play games with this, right? He saw right through it. Um, he knows that this question is coming from the hypocrites. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus started to respond to them, starting in verse 8. Nope, starting in verse 6, going to verse 8. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's quoting from Scripture here. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the, to the tradition of men. Jesus isn't wasting a moment here pretending that there's any legitimacy to what they're asking. He's going right after them, and he starts by calling them hypocrites, which that's it's a strong word. There's a strong rebuke, and it's a word that means like a, like a play actor. So he's calling them somebody that's holding up a mask, some persona that they're pretending to have that represents somebody completely different than who they truly are, right? These men were self-lovers and self-exalters, not true God-fearers. And Jesus called them out on that. What they loved was what religion provided for them. They weren't really concerned about honoring Yahweh and, and leading people to worship him faithfully. Yet they're talking as though, you know, they have this pretense of trying to protect the true religion, the true worship of God, pure intentions, right? But then they're taking this, this false mask of this true religion 
and they're using it to bind people's consciences below them and hold control over them. This is blatantly hypocritical stuff. But if we're honest, this is a danger with us, right? Sometimes we see somebody doing, we don't like what they're doing. We might even be secretly envious that they're able to do it. We wish our consciences would allow us to do it. And it may not even be explicitly sinful, but it makes us feel uncomfortable so we don't get to do it, right? Or maybe something somebody does just personally offends us because we find it distasteful, but again, it's not sinful. We can have all of these motives welling up within us, but if we ever then approach that person or we talk about that person as if we didn't have these weird feelings, these weird emotions underneath, we start to act like we too are just concerned about their spiritual well-being and we want to bind their consciences, maybe not explicitly, but we want, we want them to feel the same way about it as we do. We want their consciences to line up with ours to match how we feel about it. So we start to wear this mask of holiness also, of we're just really concerned about their well-being, and that's not always the case. And we, we call out those that don't feel the same way about us. So we need to be very weary of that, or wary, weary and wary, that we don't fall into those habits. So before you talk to a brother or a sister, uh, before you confront them about something you see them doing, really ask yourself the question, is my true goal in my heart for this person to be experiencing the true peace of God and the blessing of God? Or is there some other motive of envy or punishment or retribution in why I'm confronting them on this? Because our hearts are pretty, uh, pretty despicable, right? And uh, they're often the most despicable when we pretend to care about God and about the person's soul when that's truly not our motivation. And Jesus confronts this sin pretty directly and harshly, right? He tells them that they were following in the footsteps of what Isaiah wrote about, right? They are people that are honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They're teaching as doctrines, so as official teachings, the commandments of men, and in doing so, laying aside the commandments of God. The the first statement in in that verse 6 is really the definition of spiritual hypocrisy. They're wearing this mask of honoring God, about worshiping God, about everything's about God's glory. Their lips are saying the right things, but their hearts and their words don't line up. They were actually directly at odds with each other, right? And when our lips are saying things that don't actually represent our hearts, that's what hypocrisy is, right? When we have this posture of spiritually loving motives, but we're really working with something different in our hearts, fleshly motives... That's bad news, and that's what he's calling out here. True, right worship of God is when our hearts and our lips are both saying the same thing. Our hearts truly want to please God, and our lips are an expression of that truth. What Isaiah was pointing out and what Jesus ascribes to these Pharisees is that they're worshiping in vain, right? People like this are trying to worship God, at least in the original motives, but... They've not started where true worship really starts. True worship always starts with humility and repentance. It starts with our hearts adjusting to who God actually is and who we actually are. We're telling the truth to God and accepting truth from God. But religious people attempt to worship God as they currently are, right? In their pride, they approach God seeking to maybe even do something for him, as if he needed something from, from us in any way. Or doing things to try to earn his approval, or earn the approval of men. And what, they're, what they hopefully find, and come to repent of, is that these worshiping efforts are in vain. Right? Uh, they might think that they're doing something that pleases God and helps God out, but they're always incorrect about that when they come from this angle. Their efforts aren't producing anything for God. And... I'm going to hit on this a little bit more towards the end with some critical application. So if you take away nothing else, I do want you to remember that when I get there. You still have to listen for now, but I'll I'll bring it back up when we get there, okay? Um, And it goes on here. It notes that these kinds of people are teaching man-made commandments as doctrines, so like official teachings. They'd be on the website. And that causes them to lay aside the true commandments of God. This is what the people in Isaiah's day were doing. This is what these uh, Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. 
And that's what people in our day are doing, right? They come up with new rules and teach them as if they were God's rules. And that's, that's such a dangerous urge for us to do. We really need to guard ourselves against this. Um, it's, I've said it already, but it's so easy to think that if we just added on this little extra rule, it would really help God's people, but it won't. Um, Jesus points out a principle for us here. You can't have the commandment of God and the commandment of men in any kind of equal balance or coexistence. They will be at odds with each other. And because of our sinful hearts, the fleshly laws always tend to take priority over God's laws. Well, why is that? Well, if you think about it, it's because these laws of men are actually doable. Right? We can actually do these by our flesh. The, the actual requirements for perfectly holy living, what would those be? I'll tell you. It would be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And, on top of that, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but I haven't truly done that for a single second of my whole life, right? And I'd be fooling myself if I thought that I did. My whole heart, my whole mind, my whole strength, not for a second. But these extra man-made rules, like washing a special way before I eat, or any rules that we come up with today, I could probably do those if I tried hard enough, right? And then in doing that, I could take credit for doing those, right? And then I could use my success or failure to meet those rules as a result of my excellent effort. And when I'm able to do them, my pride gets the throne. My pride is given the glory. And when we do this, which we all probably tend to do, we can either become prideful or we can become discouraged if we don't do it. And when we do this to other people, we bind their consciences where God has not made such a requirement. I'm taking a gamble. I don't, want to, I don't want to rail against any particular denominations today. But where I see this a lot in our current day is with people who we're probably all friends with. And that's the apostolic community, right? We have a lot of former ACs at Newcastle. You probably all know tons of ACs. They're great people. Great people. And I'm confident that there are hundreds of them within the AC body of churches that truly are saved by the blood of Christ and resting in his finished work alone. But if you look into what the AC culture is like, you see a lot of these rules. You see that much of their internal culture is about following very particular rules that you're going to have a pretty hard time justifying from Scripture. And then the failure to meet these rules or whether you are meeting the rules, that becomes the measure of your status within that church. And what that is, it's, it's a yoke put on the people of God, on Christians that ought not to have such a yoke once they're taken upon the yoke of Jesus. So again, not, not to slam the AC church, I probably could have used some examples that we've all done here, but you know that hits a little too close to home, so let's pass it down the road a little bit. But those are the kinds of things we do. We make these extra little uh, rules, and then that's how we measure uh, what it is to be a Christian. In this kind of legalism, what we're doing is we're binding ourselves and others where the gospel has freed us. We've been free from these things. These legalisms make law-keeping, even extra-biblical law-keeping, the measuring stick for what it means to be faithful. And then it makes faithfulness to those new laws the measuring stick for salvation and peace with God. And that is incredibly damaging. So the last thing we're going to come to, and since I put them out of order, is the warnings. So I'm not going to click yet. Um, but I'm going to pull these warnings from the specific example that Jesus gives regarding how they are damaging people and doing a disservice to the true law of God with their extra-biblical laws. So starting in verse 9 to the end of our passage, let me read here. And he was also saying to them, You're good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many things such as that. So while God made it clear to his people through the fifth commandment, which we then see reiterated in the New Testament by Paul, 
Children are to honor their parents. And part of that honoring, particularly in the culture of the day, means to truly look after their needs, right? Children were to take care of their parents, especially as their parents aged and could no longer take care of themselves. And this was part of obeying God. Part of loving God was doing this. Well, the the Pharisees had their own little rule that could be used as a loophole here. And that was, the setting, that was this idea here of setting aside resources as Corbin, okay? So to quickly explain that, suppose that I have a lot of resources um, and my aged mother has a disease that's going to require a lot of those resources to, to keep her well. Now, God's word would require that I do use my resources to take care of my mom, right? That would be honoring her in a way that God requires in his law. Well, let's say I'm this guy, I've got this sick mother, I've got these resources, but I kind of like my resources, and I don't want to spend it on helping my mom, because she's going to die soon anyway. But I also want points for appearing spiritual, to appear as though I'm obeying. I still want to keep membership in the Good Jews Club, right? Well, these religious boys of the day, looking for such a loophole, lo and behold, they found one, and they had this perfect solution. And they had this tradition, this rule that said that a person could dedicate a certain amount of their resources to God, set them aside for God. That's what it means to declare them as Corbin, right? So once you've declared something as Corbin, these funds, these resources, whatever it is, is now dedicated just to God's service, right? Now, isn't service directly to God an even higher, more lofty, more spiritual priority even than service to mom and dad, right? Side note, if I dedicated money in this way, called it Corbin, some portion of that does go to supporting the religion, kind of like dues to the country club, so to speak. So no one's going to really get on me for not using those funds to help mom out. And this was the kind of thinking that allowed for this scam, which is what it was, to continue. You know, love to help you out, mom, but I can't. These funds are Corbin, and you wouldn't want me to break the tradition of Corbin. I've set these aside for God. You wouldn't want me to break that, right? So, the rule here, it, it just gets, it gets enraging. You get mad about this. The rule was that a person was essentially allowed to keep this money now, when they set it aside as Corbin, and use it at their discretion, but just for spiritual purposes. But here's the, here's the kicker. In the future, they could toggle on and off this Corbin allocation by basically just declaring, like Michael Scott declared bankruptcy. Scott got the reference. You guys should watch The Office sometime, Maybe. Um, you can just declare, not Corbin anymore. Not Corbin anymore. Need a new tent. Not Corbin. Use the funds for that. So what these jerks would do is after the death of the parent that they didn't want to spend that money on helping, they would then toggle the Corbin button off, and they would still have just kept all of these resources for themselves other than the little dues they paid along the way, and they never had to spend it on mom, and they never had to be looked at as unfaithful. This, like, what a pile of deceit. This is, right? But these religious leaders stood by it, right? And by standing by that rule, they were endorsing overt sin against the commandments of God. Overt sin in dishonoring one's parents for the sake of following one of their traditions. Um, What does Jesus have to say about this, right? He says in doing this, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. This is the ultimate danger of legalism. We can, we've got finite brains. We can only focus on so many things. And when there's a law of God and a human legalism, as I said, we always tend to drift to the legalism. And when that happens, the word of God starts to have less and less effect. Sometimes that's because, you know, in this case here with the Corbin stuff, the legalism is actually directly in conflict with the real law, right? Even if this idea of Corbin wasn't a bad thing, you know, setting aside funds to be used for uh, the Lord, that's not a terrible budgeting practice to do. But making it a law with enough clout to be able to cancel out a law of God, that's a big problem, right? But even if our little legalisms aren't that bad, these little knick-knack supplementary laws that we come up with, they often distract us, right? They distract us in our pride, we start to focus on these external things, and we miss the internal things. We focus on the religious to-do list um, that 
goes against what Scripture actually has to say about what our heart situation is, and it makes God's true law to no effect. So please don't ever fall into the thinking that adding these little laws regulating the behavior of God's people is like no big deal, right? This is really, really dangerous. Um, the, the bottom line, um, and we could talk specifics if we wanted to, but the church should not be making artificial laws about anything where God is silent, right? We shouldn't be having a, well, think about this. If we have a tradition about when and where to meet, right? We meet at a regular time here. Our tradition is to meet for Sunday school at 9.30. Not a problem. God doesn't prescribe a, a particular time or a particular building for meeting, but those kinds of traditions need to be open-handed, right? We need to be flexible on that. Um, in other maybe more complex issues, like maybe it's about uh, what it means to dress modestly or what proper stewardship of finances is, um, the appropriate use of language, we should be sure that the first thing we're doing is loving one another, right? Particularly with those with whom we degree. God doesn't have hard and fast rules on those things. So any tradition that we come up with also needs to be open-handed. Um, for those things, we should ask loving and concerned questions where it might be appropriate. And we should lay out what God has said on any matter and draw our uh, principles from there. But we do our Lord a great disservice and we do harm to the word of God when we try to add on top of it, right? Again, doesn't need our help. Doesn't need our bright ideas. What scripture really needs from us is humble submission to what he's already said. Let me skip ahead here a little bit for the sake of time. I want to get to that really important point, okay? Before we get to the warnings. I, left, I only left one actual fill-in-the-blank for you. I don't care what you wrote on the rest of the page. I just left one fill-in-the-blank that I wanted to get to because of how important it is. What I'm all saying here about adding things to Scripture to try to help obey God better and then also talking about how that uh, can eventually be used to determine you know, the state of your salvation, here's the fill-in-the-blank. Scripture is sufficient for the rule of faith or for life. Scripture is all good on that, doesn't need our help. And then on the other end, Christ is sufficient for salvation. We cannot let those two conflict with one another. So let me just run with that briefly and land the plane with two quick applications. Firstly, in terms of our horizontal relationships with our brothers and sisters, we have to avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, okay? We, as believers, we don't need to wear a mask. We don't need to play act. When, when we start working too hard to win the approval of other Christians or we try to create these spiritual impressions with others uh, or we try to hold people to a standard that God hasn't set for them, we need to check our hearts, right? On any number of topics, we need to ask ourselves, why am I concerned about this or why am I doing this? What's really going on in my heart? What do I really want for my brothers and sisters, right? What's really driving my actions? And we would do well to ask the Lord to help us uncover those things. Help us with that introspection. Help us through revealing through his word what he expects of us as a body of Christ. We're in a great, um, uh, a great sermon series to be thinking about those things of how we build up the body, not criti criticize and, and break down the body. What we know for sure in all of this is, is that God knows the situation. We might be able to fool our friends. We're not fooling God. Right? We, we want to make sure that any tradition that we've made for ourselves, any guardrails that we've made for ourselves, which may be good things, are just for us. If we set these up to help us not sin, wonderful. Good idea to do. But we have to avoid the temptation to turn our guardrails into guardrails for everybody else. Right? Um, making it a goal for yourself to never miss a Wednesday evening church activity because you know you tend to spiritually drift if you don't go to those things. Fine. Not a bad rule, but don't make that to where if the Christian next door isn't also going every Wednesday and he misses two in a row, don't now mark them. Lukewarm Christian, maybe not even saved. I don't even know. Better talk to the pastor about it, right? <laughs> we can't do that, right? God's word is the standard, not our preferences and traditions. So in between what's made crystal clear in scripture and what is maybe more nebulous is where wisdom and Christian liberty come into play. Remember that. Christian liberty is uh, critical. And then one last application, which is more about your vertical standing with God. 
And this is what I really wanted to, to make sure stuck with you. So hopefully you're still uh, with me here. But whether or not we're even talking about God's clear word, your personal legalisms, the, peer, the pressures from others about their uh, understanding of what God expects, please don't forget how it is that you are justified before the Lord. Okay? Obedience to God's law is incredibly important. Okay? Incredibly important. Um, sticking with what some call your spiritual disciplines, things for like regular Bible reading, regular prayer time, uh, those are also good and wise things to do, right? Even though, I don't know if you've noticed, there's not a commandment in the Bible to read through the Bible fully every single year. That's not in there. It wasn't on the tablets brought down from Sinai. All good things to do. But how obedient you are is not the measure of saved or not saved by the blood of Christ, right? If you aren't seeking to obey at all, if you're not seeking to obey God's word at all, that's a different conversation, okay? But as a believer, how good you're currently doing at obeying is not how we determine whether or not you're saved, right? You're justified before God, not on account of your obedience, right? Now, I I see this in... um, some membership applications that I get to see, but even just in conversations with people, and you'll ask a question like, you know, how do you know that you're a Christian, right? What assurance do you have of your salvation? So often I, I read and hear responses where people give me a list of what they're doing, right? Oh, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, uh, I come to church every Sunday, well, most Sundays. Uh, I'm reading my Bible every day, almost. Um, I stop swearing, except when I go golfing. Um, and I stopped looking at things on the internet. I should, they, they give this list, all of these things that they are doing. Now first, praise God, if that's your list. Praise God that you're being sanctified in those ways and growing to be more Christ-like. By his grace, praise God. But non-Christians can do every single thing that I listed there, right? What would separate a non-Christian doing those things, you know, showing up at a particular building every week to hear someone read from a book, Stopping cussing. Non-Christians can do those. What's the difference? Well, when a Christian does those things, they're doing it by faith, right? One is a Christian on account of their faith in God's promises, right? When God says through Paul in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. When he says that, I believe that, right? When God says through Luke in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I believe that. I trust that. This is is straight Galatians 3 stuff here, okay? Galatians 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And that's a rhetorical question, right? So given the fact that I do indeed trust by faith and put my eternal hope in the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, himself truly God and truly man, who lived a sinless life that I've not lived and then took my sins upon himself on the cross in doing so granting me his righteousness as a gracious gift from God. My trust, hope, and faith in that, that's what makes me a Christian, right? Those other things, those really important things related to obedience Those are the things a Christian does, right? That's for sure. But those aren't the things that make a Christian, okay? And that's that's not a distinction without a difference. This is really important. And when this is going to be really important for you is when you start feeling beaten down because you're struggling to put off a certain sin. Uh, You're trying really hard not to gossip, but it keeps rearing its ugly head. Uh, You've been fighting against lustful thoughts about a friend or anybody, but you keep falling into it, right? Man, I can't quit gossiping. Am I even a Christian, right? Or maybe some bad things have happened to you, nothing you've done. Why did God let this bad thing happen to me? Does he not love me? Am I I his enemy? Am I not a Christian? I pray in those moments that you would remember what you're confessing when you say you are a Christian, right? I pray that you would Look outside of yourself in those moments for an objective certainty. Look for your confidence in the immovable promises of God through the person of Christ that belong to you. Those promises belong to you. Look to those 
and not to your subjective feelings about how you're doing right now or how you're feeling right now. If you are struggling with those things, don't navel gaze and start to doubt your salvation, but cling to Christ, right? Cling to Christ. Reach out to a Christian faithful friend. Talk with them. Reach out to an elder so we can help you find your satisfaction in Christ instead of looking to the flesh for the solution, even your own flesh. We can help you point to Christ and help you become more like him. Okay, I got a little sermony at the end there. Um, but that happens from time to time. So before we let Scott sprint across the street to, to preach from Ephesians, are there any questions or thoughts or comments? Okay, if no, I did give you some questions to ask yourself, or, or you can do it in groups sometime. It's, I think you guys call it a Sunday sit-down. So I want you to ask yourself the questions, what are my traditions? The my being you, not me. I'll tell you if you want to know. But ask yourself, what are your traditions and where do they come from? And are they helping you to love God and others more or not? And then the second set of questions, I already sneaked three questions into question one. That was clever, right? But the second one, am I allowing my traditions to excuse disobedience? Do you have any Corbin-like traditions yourself? And then with that, am I judging or binding the consciences of others according to my personal traditions or guardrails? And then the third one, am I finding... I'll ask you, are you finding your hope in your adherence to the law, either God's law or other laws, or are you finding your hope in the finished work of Christ? And I note there, you all know what the right answer is, okay? I know what the right answer is too, but really truly examine that with yourself. Am I looking to myself to to meet a standard to get God's approval, or am I looking to Christ? Such an important question to consider. If there are no questions, I will close this in prayer and dismiss you. For those of you heading to second service, it's a good one. Um, For those of you that are already in the first one, you can stay for another round. It was a good enough message to be heard twice. Otherwise, you have a good Lord's Day. But let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, um, what a blessing it is to have your revealed word and to have that word be such a source of comfort for us. Uh, Father, sometimes your word challenges us where we need to be challenged. And that's good. And I pray that when we feel that challenge, we don't go off and try to white knuckle it to do better. But we look to Christ, that we look uh, at what he has done for us and respond according to that. Uh, Father, we know that what we believe uh, informs how we act. And if we believe rightly about uh, what you've said in your word about how we are justified, how we are made right before you, that's going to lead us to, to do certain things. But Father, I pray that you protect us. Please protect me from this tendency to try to do the things to earn what's already been given to me. Uh, Father, for these students here, the ones that you've granted eternal life through Christ's blood, remind them what they've been given and have them respond accordingly. Father, I pray that they would all be released from any kind of burden they feel that they need to try to earn that forgiveness because that, is, that will lead to despair, that will lead to exhaustion. Father, please protect them from this. Uh, don't let us become like the Pharisees. Don't let us create rules for others. And Father, where we feel we're being pressured by uh, rules that uh, didn't come from you, give us the, the, the freedom to release ourselves from those burdens and ask questions where questions need to be asked and seek your word for what it has to say. But Father, uh, above all, I pray that you would uh, grow us in Christ's likeness and remind us that we can rest in what he's done on our behalf. I pray all that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you all.